Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'd like to welcome the people who answered all those questions. They're going to come out for us right now. I'm just kidding. They're not here. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can see the most of them, this week was kind of short answers. Uh, they didn't want to talk to me as much. But um, the question before us is, what does God expect in return for taking us back? Or for forgiving us? Right? Kind of similar idea. I think you get the point. So basically the question is, what's the catch? And some of us, I think all of us, have been asked or have asked some variant of this question before, right? What's the catch? You know, what's in it for you? Or what do I have to do? Or do I have to dress up like Tinkerbell? Is that it? Maybe I've just been asked that question. <laughs> but is there something I have to do? Do I have to humiliate myself for something great? For something that seems like too good to be true, right? People look at us with that skeptical eye and wonder, what's the catch? A student friend of mine uh, named Sean asked me a similar question back in the spring of 1999. Uh, I was a Young Life leader in Richmond, Virginia. Young Life's an organization, a Christian organization that reaches unchurched or unbelieving uh, high school students. And so I met this guy, a great guy. Uh, he's one of these guys who is... Um, sort of the prototypical, you can't judge a book by its cover. You know, he was, he's very um, questioned everything. He said, hey man, what's up dude? Why are you calling me dude? I'm not part of your system. I'm not part of, I'm not part of your thing. You always do that kind of thing, you know what I mean? And, uh, but when you got to know him, one of those honest, uh, tender, giving people uh, I've ever met, the guy, he, he, he bought me three CDs, burned ten, uh, none of which I have today because they're all inappropriate for people under the age of 18. So I have children, they're gone. But uh, anyhow, very giving man. And I built a relationship with him and was able finally to one day sit down over some uh, Mickey D's and share with him how, how Jesus had died on the cross, that he died the death that we should have uh, because of our sin. He took our place on the cross and uh, died to forgive us so he could be with us forever. You know, obviously I explained this in more, some more detail, but I remember uh, he raised his eyebrows at the end of saying even these words. You know, looked me straight in the eye and said, what's the catch? Tonight, we're going to read one of the most important, or this morning I should say, one of the most important and surprising teachings of Jesus Christ. It's very surprising for this day and age. Even if you may have heard it before, this would have been a shocking story to hear at the time when Jesus was telling it. Through this story, Jesus challenges the notion that God expects something back from us in return for forgiving us. Open your Bibles if you got them with me. Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 11. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I say that a lot, but this time it's true. So are the other times. But 15, verse 11. Also be up on the screen for you. <clears throat> Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, came to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to me, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage in Scripture. Jesus, you said that when your Spirit would come, he would guide us into all truth. And that he would bring glory to you, Jesus. We pray that would happen this morning. Guide us by your spirit into the truth. This passage, what you want to show us, teach us, have us apply to our lives. Help it bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm very excited about this this morning. I love this story and I've read it probably and studied it probably a hundred times. It's not to say anything. I'm just, this makes me just a big Bible dork. But mostly I want to say that because I have learned something new from this. And this is the great thing about God's Word. When you read it, you can read it three, four times, and it's the fifth time you see some truth in your life because God's Word is powerful. It's living, it's active, and the Holy Spirit uses it powerfully. It's not just a book to be read for history, but it's His story used to impact our lives. And and this week it happened again, where God... Just show me something that impacted my life greatly. I'm going to share that with you, but I'm going to wait towards the end. First, I'm going to share you some things I've learned before, but are nevertheless, I think, very impactful. Uh, this story is about life, right? About how man chooses to approach God. 
how men and women choose to approach God, and how God chooses to approach man. Right? So we're going to start, yeah, we're going to look at the lost son and the running father. I'm going to wait to talk more about the older, older son next week. The lost son, a young man who, who got by going away. He received by running away. I want to ask you, I have a few questions for you to start out. Uh, what, if you have a Bible with you, what's the label at the top of the story? What does it say? Bold letters. Anyone got anything? Just call it out. Parable of the lost son. Or the, anyone? Some of you might have prodigal son. Anyone know what prodigal means? Anyone idea? Okay, yes. Wasteful. Yeah, giving, way being wasteful with your life. Well, third question, who or what is wasted in this story? Who's wasted in this story? The son's life, right? The son's life. And, and you could even say the son may have been literally wasted. At some point when he runs away and experiences wild living, he was probably, quote unquote, wasted, right? Um, we can, I'm just going to assume that. That's wild living. This is what happens. All right? Um, but he did much more than waste his own life. Much more than waste his own life. Look with me in verse 12. Verse 12 is very important, I think, to this parable where he says, the younger of them said to his father, this is the big request of the parable that turns the action of the whole parable. Younger of the sons asked to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. The second sign it says his property. It's a, it's a Greek word there. It's different from what he said earlier about his property. The, the Greek word there is ton beyond, which literally means his life. Literally means his life. That means the father's life. The son is asking the father for his life. And the father gives it to him. That might be confusing for some of us, but a man's life, a family's life, was tied to his property. If you lived in the Middle East, lived in Palestine at this time, this is what happened. A man's life was tied to his property in a way that only a fourth-generation corn-husking family from Nebraska or, or a corn-growing family from South Africa would understand. Right? Some of us don't get this. Right? We, a number of us who have moved here to Cayman, most of us rent. Right? Unless you're from Cayman, my, my guess is most of us rent homes and, and, and the property is taken care of by someone else. Or you actually have someone take care of that property. Right? Like in our case, we were renting as well, but to kind of get the price down, to lower the prices, I offered to actually take care of the property. I even brought my lawnmower down from the States, which was. I was looked at very bizarrely when that happened. I brought the lawnmower down. Uh, surely leaked oil all over the container. But uh, I was told to take care of our property. But have you, if you, have you seen our yard? I'm telling you, I don't really care very much for the land at this point. I mean, there are things growing all over the place. There's coconuts. You know, there's iguanas infesting. And I don't know what's going on. But uh, the point is, 
Few of us really understand this in a way that would have been understood back here in the first century in Palestine. I talked to a friend of mine here, uh, uh, a native Kamanian, who was explaining though to me this week that that's a big deal here in Cayman, particularly the issue of property rights and, inher- and, and rights related to inherent, inheritance and property. Which makes sense, right? You've lived here most of your life, you have property, you pass it down. So it's a big deal. And my guess is it can be a sensitive issue. But imagine how rude it would be to ask ahead of time for that property. You know what? You're still alive, mom and dad, but I like the property. All right? It, if you think about it then, it was four times, five times as worse in the Middle East when this was really all you had. You lived off the property. This was it. It wasn't a lot of monetary goods. There was a lot of trading for the most part particularly in the rural areas. The estates would not have been divided till the dad's death. The youngest got half of what the oldest son would have received. If you do the math there, that's a third. All right, he would have got a third of the property. To ask for the property beforehand is to basically say to the father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. So here's the point. The son not only squandered his own life, but he wasted the life of his father. He basically said, I'm taking your life and I'm selling it on eBay. Right? To some stranger who's going to come, by the way, and live next to you as a constant reminder. Imagine this scene. Strangers are going to come by and live next to the father as a constant reminder of the father's loss. The loss of both his son in his own life. And I'm sure he would come and play loud music and have parties till the break of dawn just to be a further annoyance. Makes it worse. Many of us, when we look at the younger son, it's hard for us to relate. And that's okay. In one, in one respect. We can't relate. I, you know, I've never gone prodigal. Not like this. Spending my entire life in wild living. You know, craziness. I've had a chance, as I mentioned before, to just listen to a number of people's stories here in the church of how people have come to faith in Christ, and it's been awesome. I've loved it. And this is continuing as we've had new and different people come into our church. And one of the consistent things I've heard is um, the idea that, that, or at least one thing I've heard, is that I've been a Christian since I can remember. I grew up this way. I don't remember otherwise. You know, I've gone to church all my life. I've walked with God. And honestly, my life has been pretty tame. It's been pretty easy. And my challenge for those of you who say that is he would be, really? <laughs> really? Are you sure that it's, it's, it's God, the God of the Bible you've been walking with? Now, in one respect, I, I get it because... See, it's easy. You've been a Christian since you can remember, you know, that, that outwardly you didn't uh, involve yourself in like blatant atheism. I hate God. Or you didn't like practice witchcraft. You know, you didn't uh, take drugs. You didn't like play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, which some people think is awful. Um, you didn't do these outward things. But on the other hand, I do have to ask, is it the God of the Bible you've been walking with? 
Because from Isaiah to Peter, when normal people encounter God, in light of his great glory and majesty, they are struck by the darkness of their own hearts. Isaiah, whoa, I'm a a man of unclean lips. Peter, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. It's not so much about our hearts, it's about God's glory, but it is also about our hearts. When you walk with the Lord, you begin to see the prodigality, the prodigalness, if you will, of your own heart. Because he is glorious, he is holy, he is perfect. The idea, even the idea that, that, that you've never gone prodigal, that we've never gone prodigal, that was the problem with the older son. And he was unwilling to acknowledge his need for the Lord. Unwilling to acknowledge that in his heart, he had also wasted the father's life. Remember two weeks ago, a few weeks ago, if you were here, I asked you, who are these parables addressed to? And we concluded they were addressed, remember the beginning of Luke 15, not to the tax collectors or sinners, but to the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, not to the religious people, sorry, not to the irreligious people. They had come, they had heard, they had the ears to hear. But to the religious people, they were the ones who had gone prodigal in their hearts. So my charge to you guys, if you've never felt your heart go prodigal, you haven't shown that you're capable of all the profligate lusts of the younger son and felt a sense of lostness, a sense of desperation, just give it time. <laughs> Read God's word, walk with him, and just give it time. Because you'll see it if you walk with the living God. The running father. The running father. In my opinion, if, if, if we were to rename this parable, which you could technically, it doesn't say, this is the parable of the prodigal son. That's just a title the Bible uses, uh, the, the publisher uses. I would call this parable the parable of the running father. Because as shocking as what the son did in violating the father and wasting his life, this is where the listeners of this story would have been especially shocked. A Middle Eastern father of wealth and nobility would never have greeted his son in this way. It's the picture of your grandfather sprinting or hobbling, whatever you want to go, across a field to embrace you. To see you. You can hear the mother saying, slow down, Abe. Slow down. As he checks to see if any of the neighbors are looking. Going on, this you can hear the servant saying, Look, hey, don't forget your hip replacement. Remember, you didn't take your Metamucil. All right, you didn't take your medicine today. You know, people are warning and telling him, Stop, he would not have done this. That's the best way I can picture it in modern terms. <laughs> when, when the neighbors, when the neighbors finally did see this Middle Eastern father catch up to his son. They would not have expected him to treat the son in this way. They would have expected him to rain blows. I mean, punches, slap upon his son, upon the crown of his head for doing what he did. There is no doubt about that. 
This would not have been a pretty scene. It would have been a violent scene. Because the son has disgraced not only the, himself, but the father wasted his life, humiliated and tainted the reputation of the whole family. Probably for the rest of their lives and generations to come. Instead, he embraces him. You see that? The, the father embraces him. The word for embraces him literally means to fall upon his neck, which means he ran, and when he got within a few yards, he lunged at the son to give him a bear hug. The father shows no restraint in his love. Not only runs to his embarrassment, but he brings out the best that he has. Right? The ring, the fatted calf, a robe. The fatted calf was a big deal. In this society, almost every meal you had would not have had meat in it. Very few meals had meat. But no meal would have been more expensive than one that included the fatted calf. This was big time. And by all accounts we have, the fatted calf would have meant the whole village, the whole village would have come for the party. The robe would have almost surely been the father's own robe. This word robe is used only three times in the New Testament. And listen to what it's used. It's reserved, this word is, for angels, Mark 16, 5, for glorified believers in heaven, Revelation 6, 11, and it's used here for a wasteful son who comes with a broken plan to reconcile with his father. Angels, glorified believers, a wasteful son. The father brings the best. Unrestrained in his love. I think there's a woman who I think described this very well. In the 14th century, a woman named uh, Catherine was summoned to Rome, Italy, from, from Siena, Italy. Because of the news of her prayer life and her spiritual intimacy, the Pope had called her and said, come on down, I want to meet you, I want to hear about you. When he asked her to describe the Jesus of her journey, Catherine of Siena replied, He's pazzo de more. He's ebro e more. With a fire in her eyes, she was saying, He is crazed with love. He is drunk with love. Why doesn't our God show a little more class, a little more dignity, a little more restraint? It's because he's a father who's consumed with love, who is waiting for sons and daughters every night to return to him. For just one to return so that he can fall upon their neck, embracing them. That's our father. That's who he is. Getting back to the question we started with. What's the catch? What's required? What's expected for the father taking us back? What does he expect in return? To get to this question, we really have to ask another question. And it's a big question when it comes to this, and I hope you'll see why. It's a question I've always thought about when coming here, and I, I think this is where God has shown me some new things recently in this. It's a question of, did the, did the younger son really repent? Did the younger son, was he really sorry for what he'd done? 
Was he really committed to change in this story? When he comes back to the Father. What is repentance? It's an important idea. We see this, this idea constantly in the Gospels, and particularly in Acts, where people ask what's required for salvation to believe and repent, to repent and believe. So what does it mean? It's said all the time. Clearly it's important. In the Old Testament, the term most closely associated with repentance, a break from sin, is the word shuv. All right, it's important. If you're taking notes, this is a good time. If you're not taking notes, take notes now. This is a, I want you to learn this here. I would encourage you to anyway. Shuv, to return or turn. To turn from sin, turn to God or to return to God. In the New Testament, we have a different word. In Greek, the word is metanoia. And it implies a change of self, a whole change. A change not only of actions, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of conviction. It's used in the New Testament 57 times, metanoia, repentance. So knowing these terms, does the younger son actually repent? I would say I don't think so. At least not at first. Right? In returning, he shoves, but he doesn't metanoia. Does that make sense? He shoves, he doesn't metanoia. There's no change of heart, there's no change of convictions, it seems. He wasn't really sad for what he'd done. He wasn't really remorseful at wasting his father's life and ruining it. Right? He simply sees that life would be better. It would be nicer under his father's roof. In fact, there's still a degree to which he's doing what he did from the beginning. That is, he wants what he wanted from the beginning. And that is, he craves his father's things. Right? He wants his father's stuff. Listen, listen to me here. Listen to his plan and the linchpin, the key to his plan. Luke 15, 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Okay, there's the things. But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, here's his big plan. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's going to do the apology. But the big part of his plan, the, big, the, the action part of his plan is, Here's what you can do. Treat me like one of your hired servants. Here's an alternative. Here's somewhere we can compromise. See, he seeks the Father's blessing, but not the Father himself. He seeks what the Father can give him materially. And so his plan is to work it off, to work for those things. But, but the seeds of repentance are still here. They start here. And, and we know this because they often start here in our own lives. When you've tried everything in your life. For many of us, and I've been there, when life is like 32 flavors, Baskin-Robbins, right? You've tasted a little bit of everything. And nothing, nothing's worked. Nothing's worked. Nothing's worked. And you're left high and dry. At that point, 
like me, you start making a plan. Making a plan to work it off. Here's how I'm going to make it up to you, Lord. If I take this amount of X amount of time, and I make these sacrifices, surely you're going to take me back. Surely you'll take me back. We don't often write it out on a piece of paper. We think it in our heads, don't we? You know, if I just do this, I think God and I will be fine. But see, the Father's love reaches even across the theological lines of right repentance, the metanoia repentance. He says, I will take you in any condition. Even if your heart isn't right, right and you come with mixed motives, I still want to forgive you. I still want you. That's the glory of the story. So the only catch, the only catch is simply to believe that he has forgiven you. Answer the big question, simply to believe he's forgiven you. you get that? The only thing is to trust that the very thing you came for is the very thing you receive. Happens in the life of the prodigal son. And it can happen to us. Isn't that normally how we approach the Father? Mixed motives? I know I do. John chapter 6, people come to Jesus with mixed motives. Very similar to here. They want to eat. They want food. They want this bread that he miraculously provided, this fish that he miraculously provided. And they ask Jesus this question, what must we do to do the works that God requires? In other words, are saying, what's the catch and we'll do it? What's the catch and we'll do it? And Jesus responds. Listen to his response. The work of God is this. Here's my plan. The work of God is this. John 6, 29. To believe in the one whom he has sent. The one who forgives. Who has the authority to forgive. Believe in that one. That's God's plan of action. So we've learned, we've learned two things from the son's plan of action. We learned one about the father's great love to, to accept people as they are. We learned a second thing. We learned how the father's great love changes people from where they are. Here's the second point. The son has shoved. The son shoves. He literally turns home from his father, but... When he's in the Father's presence, he metanoias. He changes. I want to show this to you here. Listen for what's missing. Listen for what's missing when he carries out his plan in front of the Father, right? He's made this plan. Now he's going to carry it out. His Father's right here. Luke 15, 20-24. He arose and came to the Father. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and bring bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. And he keeps going, going. What's missing in his plan here? What's missing? What did he leave out? Yes, treat me as one of your hired servants. That's what he left out, didn't he? Now, sometimes we've read, I've read this story before and, th- and just assumed, oh, the father interrupted him. But that was almost certainly not the case. This is a father who has already radically showed a deep love for his son. And in this culture, to interrupt someone would have been extremely rude at this point. 
Plus, Jesus doesn't tell us, you know, there's no indication he interrupts. The son almost surely finishes what he has to say. Then the father goes on to say, bring the best robe, put it on him. That's important. Because he leaves out the linchpin of his plan. The way he would both make restitution to the father, pay it back, and the way he'd get what the father had, food, right? So he leaves out those two major things. How am I going to pay it back to you, father? How am I going to get food? He leaves out the most important part of his plan. Because in the presence of his father, working off his sin, what we would call works righteousness today, in the root of his sin, wanting the father's blessings instead of the father himself, those things disappear. Things disappear. What causes mixed motives to disappear? Well, verse 20 clues us in. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father's presence causes mixed motives to disappear. Causes a change. The power of God's pursuing love not only shows us that we are accepted as we are, but it changes us. Like it changes the son. In accordance with what Paul, this is right in accordance with what Paul says about repentance. Romans 2.4. He says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. You don't change to go to God. God loves you. In his presence, he changes you. And it leads us to want to change. We want to turn from sin because we see his great love in his presence. If you've tried everything and failed, you may wonder two questions. One, will the Father accept me back now? I've tried everything in my life. Will he still accept me back? Will he still take me back? You may also wonder a second thing. Do I have to clean myself up to go to him? Do I have to clean up my act? Friends, run, walk, hobble. Take a slow greyhound bus to the Father because he accepts you back with your mixed bag of motives. He receives you back even when he's clearly your last option. He wants you, just wants you back. And when he takes you back, when he gets you in his presence, he will do the work of cleaning you up, making you pure. He even changes how we start to approach him. We see his righteousness and holiness. In the light of that, you see just how merciful he is to take us back. Like the prodigal son, you grow speechless. Oh man, if I'd only known that this is what you were like, Father, I would have come back sooner. And you begin to start to love him for him. He accepts our half-hearted shuv and turns it in to a full-blown metanoia. I'm going to close this morning by reading the story. It's a true story. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. It's in the northern part of the U.S. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the link of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she sees inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Detroit Tiger baseball team play. 
Because newspapers in Traverse City, which is a suburb, report in lurid details of the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. Maybe on the West Coast, maybe Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills to make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair, makeup, body piercing. Nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody sees wheels in downtown Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. It amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay as much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When the winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes and her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl. Lost in a cold and frightening city, she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers. Something jolts the synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first few times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about coming home. Maybe. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes all the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Should she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. Shouldn't she have given them some time to overcome the shock? Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. 
but she hasn't said sorry to someone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement. She's forgotten how dark it gets this time of night. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage of diverse city. Oh God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in the protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks in her compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into a terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes she played in her mind could prepare for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, the bus terminal in First City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandfather and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy, goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears in her eyes like hot mercury and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. You love people Lord, I confess in my life, I've wasted so much of my life. Lord, I deserve for you not to be home when I return. But that's not who you are, Father. You're there, waiting for us, longing to be with us. God, I pray for those of us here today who are wondering, will the Father take me back? That they would see the answer is yes. Father, for those of us who are worried if we have to clean ourselves up, get our act together, that we remember that the Father will take care of that. He'll help our metanoia. He'll change us if we would just go to Him. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.